0: Last week, we looked at a hot-button topic. Judge not that you be not judged. And I've heard the world quote it, and I've heard the church quote it, and I've heard it used and abused, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly. And I definitely see in Scripture there that Christians are supposed to be non-judgmental because there is one lawgiver and one judge and everybody is going to face him in the final day, and that is Jesus. But we also saw that there's a difference between judgment and correction. Judgment is a person being completely written off, and there is no biblical provision whatsoever for anybody, for a believer or otherwise, to do this to another individual. We're not qualified to do that. But there is genuine biblical correction. And a person who we give permission to give uh, correction in our life needs to have, be somebody who is plank free. We, we talked about that last week. And uh, if we are going to help us determine foreign bodies in us, then they kind of need to have some, some track record. They need to have some runs on the board. They need to have some victories under their belt. They need to have a story to tell so that we can permit them. You don't just give that to any, any just random person. And, you, and it's really awkward when someone comes up to you just imposing themselves on you and going, I am going to be the person who's going to remove your foreign body. Hang on, give me time to work you out first. Let's see what runs you've got first. And uh, sometimes people do that and we kind of ignore what's in our own backyard by doing that. So if people permit us to speak into their life, make sure we, keep, we take responsibility with that. Keep our lives right. Make sure we stay victorious. And, and as we do that, we can then speak into other people's lives Now, we're going to get into the final parts of chapter 7 which have not already been covered and uh, we're going to cover from verse 7 onwards today and just look into some awesome parts of the scripture here and have a few laughs on the way but also understand that there is a serious tone to what Jesus is saying here as he comes to the end of his sermon on the side of the hill that day. So let's start at verse 7. Ask. Let's Get this right. I'll get my PowerPoint up. There we are. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets." A couple of little interesting things in there. You being evil. He's telling the people of God, you being evil. He's drawing a line between the way the kingdom works and the way the world works. And the kingdom is good. The way of the world is not good. And so we've got a bit of a line being drawn there. Are we being permission, given permission here to ask for the craziest things, expecting them to be given to us? Is this the bit where the prosperity preacher in me comes up and goes, oh, let's, 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 let's run riot with this passage? Is this the bit where we act on permission to ask for the Rolls Royce we've always wanted? If you're familiar with Christian, who, who here appreciates satir- satirical comedy? Only some of us. Okay, then you might appreciate this. <laughs> the Babylon Bee. It's an online article thing. And uh, I get these quite often. These are awesome. So let me read this out to you. Heavenly authorities issued a press release reminding Christians that the kingdom of God is still sitting on a massive stockpile of Gulfstream jets just waiting for believers to claim as their own. According to records from Heaven's accounts, the Celestial Luxury Jet Program currently has nearly a billion jets in stock ready to be delivered to your front door in exchange for a declaration of victory and faith. I don't know why these things aren't flying off the lot, a puzzled angel reported. All you have to do is claim the promise of temporal wealth that Christ purchased for you with his own blood. And one of these G650s is yours. So yeah, if a bunch of you could go ahead and grab one of these to lighten our load a little bit, that would be great. At publishing time, a spokesman had also confer- further confirmed that heavenly stockpiles of luxury cars, mansions, and obscene amounts of cash were all similarly overflowing and ready to be claimed at a moment's notice. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and suggest here there's something deeper being spoken of here. Something far more noble something far more satisfying. We're at the end of the sermon here. We need to bear in mind a few things. By the time we're talking about asking God stuff here, we have already been challenged about our character and our priorities. We've already been taught about the Beatitudes. We've already been taught about uh, the ways of the kingdom in a number of fronts. We've been taught in chapter 6 to stop worrying, to not actually, to, to, to amass treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. And start seeking the kingdom of God above all other things. Our needs have already been dealt with when we looked at the Lord's Prayer early in what Jesus taught. We've been challenged already about which path we're going to take. The wide highway of least resistance that leads to destruction or the narrow road that will open up an eternity to one of abundant eternal life. With all that stuff covered, asking Jesus for temporal stuff like a lot of prosperity doctrine seems to teach feels really unfitting with what Jesus is saying here. When Luke covers parts of this sermon he actually gives us an interesting use of the phrase as well or a a take on, on the repeating of this sermon. The good gifts that Matthew writes about in Luke's account is simply the Holy Spirit. The Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who will ask. Bearing in mind they both have two very different emphases when they're writing the Gospels. So what we see here is that we have an invitation to keep on seeking, asking, knocking, in other words, pursuing the things that the Holy Spirit wants to keep doing in us. If we constantly pursue the things of the Spirit and the Kingdom, our perfect Father will continually be generous to us to give us what we need. So we are free to keep asking. But not nagging for temporal wealth or things. But to be inquisitive, be questioning, be on a constant learning curve about the things of the kingdom, about the things of God. To keep seeking. God is in the business of revealing to those that seek. And to keep knocking. Keep coming to the place where God is and know that you have his attention. You won't be left in the cold. And the fact that he's described here as a good father rather than a dictator or a bureaucrat or an aloof emperor like they were experiencing or a high priest who told you how much you failed, we have further proof that we're not imposing on God when we come to him with this sort of mindset and with these sorts of requests. And on the back of that, if we interact with heaven on that level, we then read that you'll interact with earth so much better. The golden rule at the end there. It's a summary verse to describe how our interaction with God affects our interaction with each other. I saw someone post from a conference that particular verse through the week last week and stated how you know, this was like this really Yubiut sermon, this, this summary. Everything in the Old Testament is summed up in these two verses. The key word there is summary. Jesus is actually showing us the full intent of the law and the prophets, to love God and to love each other. But that doesn't mean we chuck all that out and go, oh, I'm just going to do this one sentence and that's my life. It's a summary, it's a call to remember the intent of, of the way it was already intended and to live that out, to live out what God wants us to achieve by living out his law. So the golden rule to treat others how we want to be treated is a is a is a reminder to say, you know what, we we, we, we want to be treated well, we want to be you know, we want to experience the kingdom, we want to know that and we need to be looking after other people the same way. Anyway, let's move on. Verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus is putting would-be disciples on notice here. Bear in mind, he's been talking about the ways of the kingdom. And now, he's putting responsibility back on us as to how we work that through. With this warning, to listen to the right people, come under the right influences. If you put up a sign saying Be- "Beware on the dog" on the ga- beware of the dog, on your gate. Most times, you've done so because you know what your dog can do. I'm like that. <laughs> I do know some people who have put them up as a, like a fake thing to ward off burglars. Others have them as like I would, as a joke. If you met my two little pooches, Brian and Stewie, you would know how you would know how how harm, harmful those dogs really are not. King Charles spaniels, they're not, you know, they're hardly watchdogs. For the most part, though, it's because we want people to be wary. And when Jesus says, beware of false teachers, he's not making a joke about it. He's saying, be wary." Israel had a track record of producing false prophets. It came part and parcel with having an unseen God and sometimes an unheard God. God didn't want to be unheard, but there were unwilling ears in some instances and other times where God simply just took his hand off the nation during their times of rebellion. And in those times, a void would be filled with people claiming all sorts of things in the name of the God of Israel. Calling for all sorts of actions that did nothing to exalt God and did everything to exalt themselves. In the church, this would happen too. And Jesus was telling us here to be careful of what we are told because of this risk. The truth of the kingdom would be opposed by people who want to teach falsely who are more concerned about the kingdom of man and we would be required to stay diligent in who we give ear to in the verse we just read we see that these false teachers are going to look right they would come looking like a sheep a fellow member of the flock a fellow hearer of the good shepherd's voice But Jesus warns us and said they will really be a wolf. Looking for people to hurt rather than help. Looking to exploit weaknesses. Looking to devour for their own gain. And Jesus tells us here to look past their appearances. Look past the smooth talk. Look past the the really glossy podcast. Look past their niceness. Look past the desire to get really close to you to be chummy chummy and look for the divine certificate of authenticity and this comes by inspecting their fruit the actions that come out of their expression and teaching of faith everybody's life bears fruit Yours does, mine does. Every one of us has a fruit of our life come out. And every member of the church, every member of the kingdom, is supposed to bear good fruit. It takes time for fruit to emerge from a plant. We'll learn later in Jesus' teaching that bearing no fruit at all is actually quite unhealthy as well. You can't play neutral in this. And the fruit then becomes the mark of who we are. A friend of mine lives in this really big property down in Melbourne. He's renting the house at the front, but there's orchards and and all sorts of stuff at the back. We went for a walk through all the whole thing and he was asking me what, if I could recognise any of the fruit trees and recognise any of the, the things that have been planted. Nothing had fruit on it. And we're just walking around and I'm completely left guessing by the leaves and trying to guess different things. I recognised an olive grove. I recognised a couple of things, but this weird there was one with a bit of weird looking green fruit and I mistook it for a fig. Turns out it was a pear. But it's not until the fruit comes in and that fruit matures that we know full well what it really is. Galatians 5 shows us that we all bear fruit based on the spirit that resides in us. The world produces fruit and the Holy Spirit produces fruit. And who we give ear to and who we deem to be good influences in our life, who we look to to live as as helpers and co-workers and and co-laborers and people who will come alongside us, people who will take the specks out of our eyes, people who will instruct us, people who will lead us, people who will help us live out the kingdom way, people who will do this in a community together and help us get over the line are the people that need to have fruit in their life that is good. And we need to clearly see that before we say, hey, I want what you have. It has to be more than an eloquent servant. You can't judge me by what I say up here, although you test what I say, but how flashy I am or how good my powerpoints are is not the substance of what I'm supposed to be and and I you know it, what I say from up here has to be lived out down there, out there. It has to be more than vague prophecies. God has a plan for your life, this is the Lord. how vague. It has to be more than spiritual signs and wonders, too, and miracles. We're about to read that it has to be deeper and more objective fruit than that. The stuff that the Spirit provides produces in all of us, the stuff that Jesus is looking for. In Acts 20, Paul told the church in Ephesus to remain alert to the wolves that would come to devour, devour the flock. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul warns his, his protege that there would be false teachers who would give people what they wanted to hear rather than godly truth. In 2 Peter chapter 2, we read a warning that there were also false prophets among the people, that is Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. A few decades later, in the same region, John is seeing this come to pass already with the rise of a movement called Gnosticism. And he writes this, Dear children, this is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. We, talk, we see in 2 Timothy that false teachers will breed division and dysfunction. But also that sound doctrine promotes unity and stability. Falsehood is alive and well in the church. We've all heard it. And with the, the interwebs, with the strength of the internet and the presence of of voices left, right and centre everywhere you turn and video clips left, right and centre, uh, you know, including our own. There is so much material out there that if we're not careful, we can actually really be um, you know, led astray if we really don't apply some filters to some of that stuff. We can be sure that everybody will show their fruit at some point in their life. A tree cannot hide its identity for long. So if a false teacher widens the path to God in word or deed rather than takes the narrow path, if they teach or deliberately live out anything that undermines the teachings of Jesus, if they question the very person or deity of Christ in any way, then don't make those sort of people a reference point in your own faith. If they emphasize spiritual things and use it to mask the fruit of their lives, then I would also say beware of that as well. Particularly given what we're about to read next. Let's look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them, I never knew you. Away from me, You evildoers. Now, I was a teenager when I read this the first time. It's really early in the New Testament. And I came to faith as a a 13-year-old. And the Bible that I had was this New Testament that I'd been given at year 7 by the Gideons. So the very first thing I read on day one of trying to understand this faith, I got to this part of the Sermon on the Mount pretty early. And I had already seen a lot of this stuff sort of happening in my church that I was now a part of. I'd seen prophecy, I'd seen all these different things, and I had said, Lord, Lord. And I struggled. Look at the details. We had outward... Identification with Jesus, where they refer to him as Lord. We see prophecy. Prophecy. We see miracles. We see service. And we see Jesus rejecting some of these people on the final day. The 13-year-old in me goes, Jesus, what gives with that? Particularly when Jesus is the one saying, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. After a lot of time in the faith, I get it, sort of. Loads of people in my lifetime have publicly acknowledged Jesus. We've all heard it, haven't we? There's been a couple of Norm Smith medalists in my lifetime. I've lost count of how many American rappers and singers thank Jesus as they accept their Grammy Awards every year. In recent years, we see loads of public claims of faith in Christ, sports people, um, celebrities, just people on the street. Donald Trump made the claim last year as part of his campaign trail. It bought him a lot of votes. In American research, through Gallup Polls and Barna Research, we get indications that as many as 48% of the American population claim that they have had a born-again experience. When pressed, this is the specifics, that they acknowledge they once had a turning point and committed their lives to Christ. How big is America? 180 million? More? 300 million. 380 million. Imagine half that population with a solid out faith in Christ and what effect that would have on a nation and the world. Will this 48%, will all these people that are making these public claims, will they all be accepted by Jesus that final day? Loads of preachers and teachers have shown up in my lifetime claiming divine authority from Christ. They've offered something which their listeners have deemed prophetic. Others have done miraculous or at least freakish things under a power they claim as that of Christ. A few years back, <laughs> 60 Minutes, ran a story of a Christian movement over there called the Snake Handlers. It prompted me to put a tweet out, which everyone loved at the time. You know, I can proudly say my, my church has been snake free for 120 years. In Matthew 24, Jesus said that false people will emerge. They will claim to be messianic. They will appear to be empowered to perform signs and wonders. Will they be accepted by Jesus that day? And the answer from the mouth of Christ here is that for some, the answer is actually going to be no. All the verbal confession and all the authority we can claim means nothing if it is not supported by moral obedience obedience to the things that God says, obedience to the things that Jesus instructs us to do. Salvation occurs because we, our active belief leads us to make a confession of faith, right? So we know that there is that, 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 that moment of confession. We're talking about it in our house churches. That starts this week. We're understanding how do we become a Christian. And there is a moment of confession in that, isn't there? You know, we, we had that last Sunday night. We create times where we can pray, where we can start the ball rolling, where we can get that reference point. Romans 10 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and you are justified. Belief is a verb. You do something. You go all in with this. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. We also know that this is something the Holy Spirit helps us do. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that no one is able to say that Jesus is Lord unless empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. So I believe that for the most part, the act of confessing Christ and Saviour as Lord, that that, that a lot of those people that are responding to the altar calls and all that sort of stuff, I believe there are massive genuine moments going on in those settings. That something significant is taking place. That people have come to a point of belief and confession at that moment. And salvation, conversion, that sort of stuff is, 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 is happening. To the point that if someone actually left that arena or left that venue or left our building and got cleaned up by a bus and they came face to face with Jesus, I believe that we're right. But if we do nothing with that action for the rest of our life and go on business as usual, do we still have the right to hold that same confidence? There is a doctrine out there called the once saved, always saved idea. And sadly, it was very prevalent in the Baptist movement about 20 odd years ago. Does Jesus think that way? I don't believe so. The salvation that I read of in Scripture is a moment that serves as a doorway to a blessed life of obedience to Jesus. It is a Holy Spirit moment designed to start us on a Holy Spirit-empowered lifestyle. I believe the kingdom way cannot be a mere verbal expression. It is too important to be just lip service. It is an expression of a believer's life and it is to be taken and, and, and it's, we're an expression, we become an expression of the kingdom of God. Scripture tells us that we are not merely citizens, we are ambassadors of this kingdom. It is far more than simply answering an altar call and leaving it at, at, at that. I've been, I've been the guy that managed people who responded to altar calls. I've seen hundreds of young people come forward and respond to a message on a night. Ask where they're at a year later and the percentages are far lower. Without the Spirit doing more, the clean slate that we get that day won't stay clean for long. To embrace the salvation that God offers through faith means to embrace Jesus as the one who saves and the one who is Lord in our life. In other words, we go all in with the claims of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We hold nothing back from him and we subject everything to him. He is complete Lord and our entire agenda and being is subject to Jesus. That's not just an altar call, that's a life. It's not just a voice change. Grace extends saving favour to us and it extends divine power for change. So a person whose expression of faith is loud and vocal and based on action while experiencing no revelation of heart and displaying no change within and not producing any good fruit, that sort of person is going to fall short come that final day. We can know all about Jesus Or we can truly know him and walk in the confidence that he knows us because that is the criteria. Depart from me, I never knew you. I want to walk in the confidence that he knows me. In Luke's account of this sermon, we see Jesus saying, why do you call me Lord, but don't do what I say? Paul writes in 2 Timothy, The Lord knows those who are his. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn from wickedness. There must be change that follows. Jesus calls for action, not just words. For doers, not just hearers. And John wrote that a person claiming faith who still lives in disobedience, that's active, not a disobedience there. Someone like that is actually a liar. if we're committed to an expression of Christianity that does not involve obedience, that does not involve pursuing a life of fruit of good fruit, that doesn't live after the things of the kingdom, that doesn't shift our agendas towards what Jesus wants, not ourself, then that initial statement of faith and that moment of salvation will blow away like chaff. Our whole heart And our whole life is what Jesus calls for. And in light of that, Jesus then ends his sermon with a challenge for us all. What are you going to build your life on now? That's how it finishes. We've covered this briefly and the kids sung it out a few weeks ago, but let's just briefly look. Therefore, therefore, after all that I've just been saying after the Beatitudes after living strong, being salt and light, after standing firm in persecution, after, after uh, you know, not worrying about the things of the world, after seeking first the kingdom of God, after pursuing treasure in heaven, after all those challenges, after not being a judgmental person and, beca- and understanding how that works, after all those things and choosing a narrow road and, 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 and identifying falsehood and, and righthood and, and those things. This is the way the kingdom is. That is the good foundation. What are you going to build your life on? Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts it into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain comes down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. There's a funny thing happens over in Western Australia. There's two houses on a main road that I drove past often. They're about a kilometre apart from each other and they're identical. One is clearly inhabited, has greenery, looks really good. The other one looks like a ghost town. They're identical houses. The ghost town was built first. The guy spent no expense on it, spared no expense. Did this really nice looking thing and then realised the foundations were dodgy. And it's an uninhabitable piece of ground. The ground is actually not good enough to build on. So a k down the road, they had to rebuild it again. Talk about having a dream home, hey? Jesus ends his sermon. Choose the narrow way, choose your influences, choose your lifestyle, and choose what you will build your life on. In Psalm 1, the righteous life is stable and productive. In Psalm 1, a righteous person is a firmly planted tree which bears fruit and is contrasted with a wicked lifestyle which has nothing to stand on and is like chaff in the wind. And Jesus here says his teaching is a sure foundation. One you can build your whole life on without fear of it collapsing, no matter how harsh the forces come against you. Those that reject him will have nothing to stand on. And when life throws its worst at them, they'll get blown away. But for us, embracing the kingdom way, we know we will stand. Not just now, but in eternity as well. So, friends, let me challenge you. Let me invite you. Let me implore you. Let's be diligent, active pursuers of the way of the kingdom that Jesus prescribes. Get this sermon, get this, this sermon, not this sermon, this sermon into your spirit. Read it often. And continually pray that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. I will seek your kingdom first. And as we do that, let's continue to live the lives that Jesus wants us to live. I'm going to invite the band up. We're going to come into a time of communion and we're going to serve you for that in one moment. As they prepare, let me um, ask you a quick couple of questions. If any part of the Sermon on the Mount over the last 15 weeks, if any part of that has, has resonated, can I ask you please tell somebody about that? And be accountable for the changes that you want to put into your life as a result of what you've heard. I have had feedback. I've had Facebook messages. I've had people you know, speak to me in the foyer. I've had different lines of feedback throughout, the, uh, throughout the, the, this series that's indicated that many of you have been resonating with what has been taught over these last few weeks. Let's not forget that. Let's not just chuck it out. Let's continually inter- interact with that. And it's nice to hear something. It's much better to do it. So uh, whatever Jesus is challenging you to do, do. Particularly out of today. What are your influences? Who are the people that you look to to live your life out? Who are the people that you consider heroes of the faith? Who are the people that you go, I believe they have a really good take on the things of God and the kingdom and I'm going to really embrace that? are they healthy people to do that with? Sometimes I have to really filter some things that I hear and go, I don't know if I agree with that or I don't know. Or I'll hear something about their lifestyle and I'll do a bit of Google searching because Google's my friend, big time. And you'll, hear, and, and you'll realize, gee, the, 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 what you see up here is not equal to what you see down on the ground. It's really important to really understand the influences that we want to have in our life. And I put myself on notice with that too. Because you have every right to inspect the fruit of my life because I'm the senior pastor of this church. I'm accountable to you on that. I get that. I'm accountable on a public sphere too because of Facebook Live and our podcasts and our websites and all these different things. I understand that. I understand that there is a burden that I have to carry with that. And I know that some of you, you know, some will watch and that's fine. Who are the influences that you have? I've got good influences. Hopefully, you all have good ones. Is there any there that are a bit shady now that that Jesus is going? Hey, listen, check that out a bit more. Then I would ask you just to go ahead and check that. Are you pursuing the true way yourself? Are you? Is your faith more than a confession of faith you did ten years ago? Is your experience of Jesus more than I got baptized as a teenager? Is it more than I'm a church member? All those things are nice, but I am most concerned with that final day where Jesus says, I know you. And if you're in a position where you're going, I don't know if I'm quiet at that point, can I ask you to make some adjustments with that? Maybe you need to pray some things through, maybe you need some help, maybe you need some insight, maybe you need some, some wisdom. Or maybe you just need to actually get some things right with Jesus. We're going to come into some time of worship now. We're going to come to the communion table in just one moment, but not before we take some time to say, who am I in Jesus? What is my confession of faith in Christ? What is my commitment to the kingdom way? Where am I truly at? And when we're then ready, as we've stopped and thought about that, we'll then serve communion after you've had some time with Jesus first. Let's bow in prayer for one moment.